Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Our reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is the longest and most comprehensive of the four Gospels and includes several features that the other Gospels do not have, including the Annunciation and birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. Luke's juxtaposition of the infancy narrative detailed in the first two chapters of his Gospel with the, in, with the events of Jesus' public, public ministry is a distinctive feature of his work. Even though the majority of Luke's work is dedicated to relating the miraculous events of the public ministry, there is great significance in the inclusion of Mary's Magnificat. Mary's song functions as a prelude to the overall Lucan theme of reversal. The gospel itself hinges on the reversal of life over death and the Magnificat giving us a foretaste of the greatest reversal of all, Jesus' resurrection. Many commentators believe that Mary's song, or the Magnificat, as it is called, was not Lucan in composition and was instead only developed by the evangelist from a pre-Christian hymn of praising, resembling the genre of a psalm detailing God's merciful acts and a creator God who is concerned for humanity, especially the most vulnerable. It is a fact that in many places around the world, the Magnificat is considered a revolutionary song of salvation whose political, economic, and social dimensions cannot be blunted. In fact, the Magnificat was banned from being sung or read in India under British rule. In the 1980s, after the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, whose children all disappeared, placed the Magnificat's words on posters throughout the Capitol Plaza, the military of Argentina outlawed any public display of Mary's song. And let us turn now then and hear these beautiful words, the song of Mary from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Indeed, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has come to the aid of his child Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word.
Can you look back over the course of your life and think of particular moments or experiences or encounters which at the time may have seemed rather small or insignificant or even random, but later proved to be surprisingly momentous or even decisive in your life? Maybe it was a chance encounter with a complete stranger that turns into a lifelong friendship. Maybe it was an improbable blind date that almost didn't happen that turns into a long-lasting marriage. Maybe it was a, a pointed question posed by a trusted friend or a well-aimed poke or careful nudge from a mentor that leads to some unexpected breakthrough or unforeseen opportunity. I often hear from people about these so-called serendipitous moments in their lives, and I have experienced many myself. I remember a blind date with Lori that almost didn't happen in 1985, and now 33 years of marriage. I remember in 2014 uh, preaching a sermon in my church in San Diego that caught the attention of a little search committee here at St. Andrew, a thousand miles away, that that led me here. And I remember the, the colleague who the week prior gave me a poke and said, I think it's time for you to preach on this one really controversial issue. So many things turn into momentous things which start off rather small. In 1957, a 16-year-old frontman was playing his guitar in a band on a makeshift stage at a church music festival when, during a break, a 15-year-old from the audience approached him on stage and offered to show him a technique for how to tune his guitar. And as the young stranger began to tune the front man's guitar, he played a few songs by Little Richard and Eddie Cochran. The band sitting around was intrigued. A couple weeks later, that 16-year-old frontman saw that same 15-year-old from the audience riding his bike through town, and he, st- he stopped him. And on a hunch, he asked that 15-year-old if he'd like to join his band. And not long afterwards, that band changed its name from the Quarrymen to the Beatles. And the rest, as they say, is history. And it all began when Paul McCartney approached John Lennon from the audience and offered to tune his guitar. A random encounter, but a momentous outcome. The French writer Alexander Dumas, who famously wrote The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo, once said, quote, the life and and fortune hang on slender threads. Dumas knew, I think, what we all know to be true in life, that the lines between success and failure, between a major breakthrough and a major setback, between seizing the moment and missing your break, are decidedly thin. Little things at very critical moments can turn out to be monumental things. Life and fortune hang on slender threads, and the same can be said of human history. History hangs on slender threads. 67 years ago, this very month, a young black seamstress refused to give up her seat to a white man on a bus 
in Montgomery, Alabama. And that small, courageous act sparked a bus boycott that went all the way to the Supreme Court and led to the desegregation of Bussin. The history hung on a slender thread on a slender woman named Rosa Parks that day. And years later, looking back on how her small act of defiance changed American history, Rosa Parks said this. She said, today's mighty oak is yesterday's nut that held its ground. Little things at critical moments often turn out to be monumental things. All of history, all of life, tends to hang on slender thread. Now, big things, they, big things get our attention and make the headlines, but it is mostly little things compounded over a long enough timeline that change the world and have impact. And this enduring truth, I think, captures the very central role that Mary, the mother of Jesus, plays in the Christmas story. A slender thread is probably the most accurate description of Mary and her very fragile situation. When we meet her in Luke's gospel, she is this anonymous, impoverished Jewish teenage girl from a nondescript village that doesn't even appear on most maps in first century Palestine. She is just a small town girl living in a lonely world (laughs) on the edge of poverty, on the margins of obscurity, and her life moves invisibly, fatefully along a rather ordinary, appointed, destined path that leads to an arranged marriage at the age of about 13 or 14. She is the slenderest of threads. A nobody from nowhere with nothing really to offer the world, living in a forgotten village which is about a hundred miles from Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship life, and a hundred miles back then is, is a million miles. And not only that, but she's over a thousand miles from Rome, the center of the empire which holds her people under military occupation. Mary is the slenderest of threads. She has no childbearing experience, no husband, no fortunes, no resources, no safety net, and no plausible explanation for what amounts to an unplanned teenage pregnancy in a tight-knit religious community where rumors travel fast and where judgment lands hard. She is barely more than a child, pregnant with a child. That's not hers, really. The slenderest of threads. And yet, according to Scripture, she becomes the mother of God. History hangs on a slender thread, and her name is Mary. And she plays this indispensable role in human history. And because of that, she's worthy of our admiration even our adoration. Because in a religious tradition that is infused with with patriarchy, Mary has this incredible power and wisdom, mighty but slender, that is unmatched in all of Scripture. And we see her wisdom and power in this particular passage that you heard read from Luke. Soon after Mary discovers that she's pregnant, she rushes off to see her relative Elizabeth in, in the hill country, of Judea. And we wonder, did her parents 
ship her off to see Aunt Beth and Uncle Zachariah to avoid this embarrassing scandal? Did Mary run away to live with them until this whole thing could finally blow over? Did Mary just need some time away with her wise mentor, Elizabeth? Someone with whom she could talk things through, to think and reflect on her current situation, to figure out what she was going to do next and and what she was going to do with the slender thread that is her life that has just now become threadbare to the point of breaking. We don't know the whole story about why Mary went to see Elizabeth, but we do know that once she got there, Mary, the anonymous teenage peasant girl, became Mary, the mother of God. And I think it's partly because what we have here is this story about the power of relationship between women. There is something elemental and beauty and enviable and inexplicable that happens whenever women get together to talk about their problems and their struggles. Whenever they get together to dream and scheme about what this all means and what they're going to do next and how it's all going to shake out and don't worry, I'm here with you the whole way and it's all going to be just fine. There is something about that connection. We don't know who, if anyone, Joseph got to talk to back in Nazareth. In fact, Scripture says he's probably a lot like most of us men, sadly, who wrestle all night long with their fitful dreams and their problems, trying to solve them, trying their best on their own power like Joseph to to figure out the Mary situation. But out in Judea, Mary and Elizabeth, they get real. They get vulnerable. They have each other. I think what they have is girl power. And I have witnessed it. I think it is the the mightiest, fiercest power on earth. It is the fruit of deep human connection, the fruit of this primordial maternal wisdom. It's the fruit of this hard-won empathy that's born of laughter and tears and questions and doubts and knowing and unknowing and talking and listening through long nights of belly rubbing. At the same point here in the story, at some point Mary has this amazing revelation, this compelling conviction, and I think it's one that we all want to believe, but we struggle to believe it. This idea that maybe behind the shadowy kingdoms of this world, behind the earthly veils that blind us to hope and keep us in the darkness so much of the time, there is another kingdom, another world, another divine reality that is pregnant with possibility and it's waiting to be born. With Elizabeth's help, Mary remembers what we in this present world often forget. That even in the dark and difficult times, God has not abandoned the world or abandoned us. And that your life and my life and our life together and the history we are making together, it's all headed somewhere good. It always has been. It has been because it's been promised from the very beginning. It was promised to Mary's biblical ancestors, Abraham and Sarah, kings and priests and prophets. All of them were told and believed that there really is a moral arc to the universe that bends toward goodness and justice and peace. The ancient prophets, they all spoke of it as shalom, 
this in-breaking peace in the world. It's already there, but it's veiled and hidden. In this world, as it breaks through, it'll show us how suffering will end and how wars will cease and how hungry bellies will be filled and how, as Mary says, the lowly will be lifted up. And this said all the prophets is where the universe is headed. It's the moral arc and it's bending. And the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9, he speaks of this, this one who is going to bring this inbreaking world into our own world. He speaks of it as, among other things, a wonderful counselor and mighty God and today everlasting father. In other words, this one will come in the form of a human who will love us like a parent loves us, unfailingly and everlastingly, tenaciously and intimately. And if we look at the world, we would say that's hard to see that God sometimes. It's really hard sometimes to believe in that God. It's hard to expect that the inbreaking world of shalom is actually breaking in. When you're standing in a bomb crater in Ukraine or if you're sleeping on a sidewalk downtown on Blake Street or you're weeping at a makeshift memorial at Club Q or you're standing in line waiting to get into a, a shelter for abused women and children, it is really hard to trust that the everlasting Father is among us. And it's hard to believe that history is headed somewhere good. However, Look at Mary. Mary's own Jewish people struggled to believe and see it too. They were under Roman military occupation. Their daily lives were littered with tanks and tear gas and tragedy and terror, unnecessary suffering, unchecked brutality, endless, endless, endless humiliation, which led to lingering grief and simmering anger. But out in Judea, Mary and Elizabeth talk it out, as only two wise women can do. And as they talk, they begin to connect the dots, and they confirm the facts, and they piece together this puzzle, a puzzle that is their life, the puzzle that is prophecy, the puzzle that is history, until it's clear that Mary is the one. She is the slender thread upon which all of human history hangs. And in her very womb is this inbreaking world called Shalom. It's about to be birthed, and Mary can see it. And so she sings this song that you heard Reverend Jerry read. It's called the Magnificat. It's based on the first few words of a song in the Latin which say, My soul gives glory or magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices over God, my Savior. The mighty one has remembered us. He's bringing down the mighty and raising up the lowly. He's filling the the, the hungry with good things. He's sending the rich empty away. And he's come remembering his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors. It all makes sense to Mary. What she's singing is that the moral arc of the universe is really bending toward justice. But it doesn't bend on its own. The everlasting father needs servants like her and like you to do the bending. And Mary says, I will do the bending. 
I'll let history hang on this slender thread that is my life. Look, history marches, but mostly it stumbles on its way to shalom. It stumbles because there are people and there are forces in the world that are in opposition to that vision of shalom. But Mary knows and trusts this promise that's been there from the beginning of time. It's headed somewhere. And Mary, because of that, teaches us that we should never, ever underestimate the power and strength that you have, regardless of how slender of a thread you are. This nobody from nowhere with seemingly nothing to offer the world one day wakes up and remembers a promise that God will show up, that history will be fulfilled with shalom. And in her remembering, she discovers that her life has purpose and a usefulness that can have momentous consequence. After graduating from seminary back in the early 90s, I served one year as a, an associate pastor of a large church in a very blue-collar community. And not only was it blue-collar, it was also largely a retirement community. Uh, I'm not kidding, even the church members called it uh, heaven's waiting room. That's how retiree it was. It was very blue-collar. Most people literally were living in mobile homes. In fact, there are more mobile home parks in that little community in Southern California than anywhere else in the country. And Lori and I were sent there um, to try to bring young people to the church. We had been married about four years, and we got there. We discovered that senior citizens, I mean, on average, don't actually give birth to a lot of children. <laughs> and so there just weren't a lot of young people around, and so Lori and I had to get really pragmatic. We decided that if we were going to bring young people to the church, we would have to birth them ourselves. <laughs> and so we got pregnant, and it was a really big deal in that church to see a pregnant woman. And all the ladies in that church got together, and they threw about five dozen baby showers. <laughs> I mean, it was every day. It was carrot cake and fruit punch with floating pineapples and oranges in it. And then the baby came, they threw us this huge baby shower. And all these older women, they would come out, literally hundreds of older women came forward to this basket and they were dropping cards with cash in it. Some of them were just coming forward with just cash. And I remember thinking to myself, I know these women. They all live in mobile homes. I knew this because I would visit them. They all lived on social security checks. Some of them barely had two pennies to rub together. And here they are marching toward this basket, almost elbowing each other. Get out of the way. I'm coming forward to drop my five, my, my 10, my 50, even 100. And I thought, I can't let this happen. But I couldn't stop them if I wanted to. Girl power. They understood their purpose in that moment and they believed that this new baby had a future. They knew that even little things like a $5 bill are big things. Life and fortune, all of history, it hangs on slender threads like you and me. Mustard seeds moving mountains, the, the one who's faithful in little is faithful in much. Jesus taught this. He lived it because Mary raised him. Mary teaches us that to bend 
the moral arc of the universe, we have to show up with whatever blunt instrument we have and start hammering away. In 1987, uh, when the fear-inducing rhetoric around HIV-AIDS had reached a fever pitch, you know, people were unsure about how this, you know, disease was being spread and how contagious it was. And in the middle of all that, Princess Diana showed up to a hospital in London, 1987, and she was photographed shaking the hand of a, a patient who had AIDS. And she wasn't wearing gloves, which today, of course, we think, well, no, duh. But back then, this simple, slender moment of compassion transformed the public dialogue around AIDS and challenged misinformation. It, it humanized the patients. The slender threads. It's the slow bending of the moral arc of the universe toward justice and compassion and shalom. And Mary teaches us this. What she teaches us is that sometimes we look at the harsh realities of the world and all we see is like the darkness of what appears to be a tomb when in fact that darkness is of a womb that holds astonishing promise. Our takeaways for today, history hangs on slender threads and the moral arc of the universe, it does bend toward justice, but never ever on its own. And God invites you and me and all of us together to do the bending. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you our hearts, our minds, our hands, our voices, our whole lives toward the bending of the moral arc of the universe toward shalom and toward goodness, toward life. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.